Okay. Hello and welcome to the Sport Professor Podcast, the show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will deep dive the world of sport paradigms. Beginning with an overview of what paradigms are, we will then move to talk about paradigm shifts in sport before ending with a discussion of how what the world is currently experiencing could be an inciting incident that causes a number of major gestalt shifts in the sporting industry. So, if you're interested in learning how our views of the world are shaped and changed and what it all has to do with the future of sports, then this is the podcast for you. So just sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of... The Sport Professor Podcast. Today, I want to take time to examine the impact of massive world events on the sporting industry. And more specifically, I want to tackle how these flash moments in time can change and reshape how we view the sporting world. In past podcasts, we talked a little bit about the coronavirus. So you know not only that it's impacting the world at large, but also having an effect on the sporting industry. It's causing sporting leagues and events and competitions to be postponed and canceled, not only here in America, but around the world. But this isn't the first time that we've seen something on the global scale drastically affect sports. We can go back and we can look at specific wars that we have fought and how that has impacted sports being played at home and abroad. We can look at natural disasters and we can look at how that has affected sports as well. And the sad thing is that this won't be the last time that we see sports affected on this scale by something. So what I want to do today is I want to look at what potential changes could be brought about because of this massive occurrence. And hopefully in doing so, we'll be able to dissect a little more about what is currently happening and forecast what lasting changes this pandemic might bring the world of sports. But before we dive in and look back at past occurrences and how those have changed the world of sports, I think it's important that we first lay a groundwork from which we can build and have a conversation. And for that, I want to turn to something that might seem like a little bit of a strange place to begin. And that is this idea of paradigms. Most people probably know the word paradigm and they probably used it from time to time in their everyday lives. But what I've learned from years of teaching and lecturing is that even though people might use a term, it doesn't necessitate that they actually understand the meaning behind the terms or even the origins of the term itself. So let's begin with the basics. What is a paradigm? The short answer is that a paradigm is a set of beliefs or worldviews. The more complex answer, according to a scholar named Gleason, is that a paradigm is a framework or philosophy of science that makes assumptions about the nature of reality and truth, the kinds of questions to explore, and how to go about doing so. So the concept of a paradigm can actually be traced back to the mid-20th century when a number of scholars started to really hone in and focus on how we came to know things. Up until the 1950s, the widely accepted view of Western science was that we came to know things through research, which was continually building on the past work of other scholars. Very simply put, someone would make an observation about something in the world, and they would formulate a guess or hypothesis as to why the thing occurred the way it did. They would then formulate a way to test that guess to see if they could disprove their hypothesis. They would run the test 
and they would draw conclusions based on the results. Another scientist would then take those findings and try to build on them. Maybe they would come in and run a new test, or maybe they would try the same test under different circumstances or something else. But regardless, they would try to build upon the knowledge that was already out there as a way to further increase people's understandings of the world. The overall goal of all of this was to continue to contribute to the body of knowledge until people learned exactly how things work. Knowledge in our view of the world in this vein was believed to come over years, if not decades or millennium of scientific inquiry and discovery, with each previous work being essential in the subsequent research of scholars. The crazy thing is, is this isn't just what was thought about science inquiry in the 17th century, the 18th century, up until the 1960s, but it's actually still how a lot of people view science today. We see that in how we teach our kids about the scientific method, the process of making observations, formulating hypotheses, testing hypotheses, and drawing conclusions. We see that also in how we talk about science and scientists. We define scientists as pervasive skeptics who are willing to tolerate uncertainty and who finds an intellectual excitement in creating questions and seeking answers. While this might be accurate for how the majority of science works, again, in that we build off the past work of others to continue to test and retest theories, it's not entirely accurate, at least according to one well-known theoretical physicist named Thomas Kahn. Now, Kahn is often credited with coining the term paradigm, though history actually shows that scholars were using the term as early as 1942 prior to some of Kahn's most famous writings. But regardless of who was the first to use the term, it's widely accepted that Kahn was the father of our current view of paradigms. In 1962, he became infatuated with the history of knowledge and scientific discovery, and he found that the long-accepted view that we just talked about, about how research was done and viewed, was inept. He noted that while this traditional view of science does exist, and it does have its place in the world, it can only take us so far with scientific discovery. He said that science isn't a slow progression, but rather it's a battle between winners and losers. The winners are the scholars whose theories win out in our society. And he further emphasized, quote, the revolutionary process by which an older theory is rejected and replaced by an incompatible new one is critical to progressing scientific knowledge. This notion highlights an important point about paradigms, one that was described well by another scholar named Brad Ray in his discussion of what paradigms can teach us about people's ability to change their mindsets. He noted, quote, paradigms also help us explain why changes of theory are often difficult experiences for scientists to endure. Like accepted theories, paradigms restrict the scientist's vision, which can even prevent her from seeing something that is before her eyes, end quote. So what Ray is referring to here is this notion that we get so caught up with our own worldviews, with focusing on how we see things, that we miss other things that could be right there. And in fact, we can distort those other things that could be right there to make them fit into our previously held paradigms, our previously held theories, our previously held worldviews. Often then, in order for there to be a paradigm shift, in order for us to shift how we see something, 
We don't need this slow progression of studies that only prove or disprove minor aspects of a theory and can only cause small adjustments. But rather, according to Kahn, we need what we call a gestalt shift or a major event that comes along that forces us to completely change how we view everything, that forces us to look at things in a new light with a new set of eyes because we have no other option. This idea of paradigms and paradigm shifts has evolved over time to the point where the construct today now extends beyond just a set of theories academics use to guide their research to include a conversation of how people in general just view the world. And how people view the world can generally be separated into two overarching categories. Those who are considered positivist and those who are considered post-positivist. The easiest way to differentiate these two paradigms and to see what group maybe you belong to is through one simple question. Do you believe that there is only one truth in the world? Or do you believe that truth is socially constructed? What do we mean by that? Well, do you think that there's only one answer to a question and that the only way you can get at that answer is by looking at a sample of people and analyzing their behavior before you then generalize what you find to the entire population? Or do you think that each person is unique and thus one question might have infinite potential answers and that each person's answer is independent to them, thus making multiple truths possible? I know we're getting a little theoretical here, so let me put this into a sports scenario to really try to drive home the point. I want you to imagine that you're a baseball manager and your team is up at bat, game seven of the World Series, game is tied, bottom of the ninth, runner on third with one out. You have a right-handed pitcher on the mound and you have to make a decision about what to do next. Do you keep the regular scheduled hitter up or do you pinch hit? Now, to make this decision... You can do two things. You can first look at the math. You can look at the numbers to see which hitter you have coming up and to see how they've done against right-handed pitchers all year. You can pull up and maybe see their career numbers against the specific pitcher on the mound. You can see the percentage of balls that they hit to the outfield because with a runner on third with one out, all you need is a ball hits the outfield to score the run and win the game. You can look at other numbers, like how they do with runners in scoring position. You can look at how they fared in late game situations and high pressure situations. You can look at a thousand different statistics for the player who's supposed to bat. And then you can look at those same statistics for every player on the bench that you could potentially use as a pitch hitter. You can look at all of that, and based on the numbers that you see, you can make a decision about whether you want to pinch hit or not. Or, the second option, throw all the numbers out and just go with your gut. Make the decision based on how you feel at that moment in that situation. What would you do? Because your answer to what you would do dictates the paradigms that you operate with in the world at home. It dictates whether you are a positivist or a post-positivist. Because the first approach supposes that through analysis and statistics, you can come to know the single right decision to make. With this mindset, it really doesn't matter if you're making the decision or me. Because if we both have the same information and data, and if we're only basing our decision on the breakdown of the numbers, then we would arrive at the same singular answer of who should be up to hit. In other words, there is a single truth, and we're going to use numbers and statistical analysis to try to learn what that truth is. The second approach is the exact opposite. Because in this approach, where you're relying on your gut You're acknowledging that the answer in that situation is dependent not on the belief that there's a single right answer to the question, but rather that in that moment, you felt that the right answer was whatever decision you made. 
If the situation were to rise again, you might feel that a different decision is the right one. The important thing is that you acknowledge there's no right or wrong decision, but rather that the decision you made in that moment was right based on your point of view, based on your experience, based on your knowledge of what's happening. With that mindset, you would also acknowledge that someone else with a different point of view, with a different level of experience, with a different knowledge base might make a different decision. And that how you acted and how the other person acted are both right. In other words, in this scenario, in this viewpoint, there are multiple truths. There are multiple right answers with each one being just as valid as the next. And you acknowledge here that we come to know what that right answer is or what that truth is by looking at the past experience of the decision maker. So I'll go back to the initial question of this scenario. How do you make the decision about who to send up to bat? If you're thinking you would use the numbers and statistics, then you are more likely a positivist. And if you say that you would use your gut, you're more than likely a post-positivist. It's important to point out here that one approach isn't better than the other. One approach isn't right and another approach isn't wrong. Rather, the two approaches are just different. And they speak to how people view the world in different ways. When I'm teaching students or sport managers about this, I try to drive home that the important thing is not whether you're a positivist or post-positivist, but rather it's important you understand how you view the world so you can better understand the process you use to answer questions and solve problems. And just as important, you need to know what the major paradigm of your field is. Because you are going to be evaluated for your job, not on how you view the world, but how your field views the world. So if we go back to our baseball example, in today's game, most fans, media, and teams view the world in the game through a positivistic paradigm, right? We are in a world of moneyball and advanced statistical analysis. Fans and players and teams and owners generally believe that there is a single correct move and that through analyzing every statistic available, you can actually come to know what the right answer is. So if you're an old school manager who believes in making gut decisions and are post-positivistic in how you approach your job, you need to be ready for questions and criticisms if you use a gut decision and go against the numbers and it doesn't work out. Now, on the other hand, if you're a positivistic individual and you make all your decisions based on the numbers, you're going to be in a much better position because your paradigm, your view of baseball, how you view the world matches those individuals who are making the decisions about whether to hire you or fire you. So you're going to be in a better position, especially if something doesn't work out and you can go and you can say, well, I did this because the numbers told me it was the right thing to do. With that as a background, we're led into what I want to be the heart of our conversation today, talking about some of the major paradigm shifts in sports and looking contextually at what occurred around those shifts as a means of trying to gauge just what changes, if any, might be coming as a result of what's happening in the world today. A great place to begin is where our conversation has been, and that's decision-making in baseball. Because while baseball has always been about using numbers and statistics to gauge the ability of ballplayers and aid managers in the decision-making process, just like we've been talking about, 
the numbers that we use and the degree to which we use them has shifted drastically, especially in recent years. Following Kahn's depiction of paradigms and theory, decision makers up until really the early 2000s were primarily focused on stats like batting average, RBIs, and home runs for hitters, and win strikeouts and ERAs for pitchers. The individuals who were considered the quote-unquote best players and who were awarded the biggest contracts and celebrated the most were those players that had the best stats in those categories. Now, if you fast forward to the early 2000s and look at the idea of Moneyball and Billy Bean in the Oakland Athletics, we can start to see a shift in the paradigm. The A's were a team that wanted to compete and win world titles, but they were lacking in a lot of the financial resources to really do so. We talked about this in a past podcast dealing with Game Theory and Major League Baseball free agency. But what's important for you to remember is that in baseball, we don't have a salary cap. So each team can spend as little or as much money as they want. So teams in big markets like LA, New York, and Boston really have the most money to spend and often can just go out and buy the best players. Well, Oakland is the opposite of a big market. And as a result, they cannot afford to go out and just buy the best players. In other words, they cannot just do what all the other teams were doing if they wanted to win because they didn't have the resources to be able to do that. What do you do in that situation? You have to change how you view things. You have to shift your focus. So they were forced to look at the world in a different way to create and test new theories about the world in baseball to try to create a competitive advantage. And if you've ever read the book Moneyball or even seen the movie, you have a general idea of what happened. The short version is they shifted how they evaluated players. They moved from looking at traditional statistics to evaluating newer, more state-of-the-art numbers that gave them a competitive advantage. The A's became and continue to be very successful in doing this. But the league was slow to follow. Why? Because the A's approach went against the traditional worldview. It went against the paradigms of baseball. And as we mentioned, people get locked into their worldviews, so much so that they oftentimes have blinders on to everything else that's happening around them. So while the A's were winning games and making the playoffs, they still weren't winning the World Series. And so many teams thought the old view of baseball was still the best, unless they continued to just follow the course. It wasn't really until a team won the World Series using the principles of Moneyball that we saw a major paradigm shift. And that team, the 2004 Boston Red Sox, who were using a similar Moneyball approach, but using big money to help go out and buy those best players using these new statistics, they changed the game. All of a sudden, the floodgates opened, and we saw a new flash of statistics and ways to evaluate players take hold across the league. We now call this the advanced metrics or the sabermetrics era of baseball. We don't consider those traditional numbers anymore. We don't really look at things like batting average or home runs or RBIs, but rather we look at stats like on-base percentage or slugging percentage. For pitchers, we don't look at ERA, we look at ERA+. plus. We don't really care about wins anymore, we care about walks, hits, innings, pitch. So we had this traditional view of baseball, which small market teams like the A's tried to change through approaching the game a different way. And they laid the foundation. They put the process in motion to have this paradigm shift. And then the 2004 Red Sox come in and they win the World Series. And all of a sudden, boom, we have a gestalt shift. 
we have one inciting instance that causes a change in how we view the entire world of baseball. We saw a similar paradigm shift happen in the NBA in the 2010s as a result of the Houston Rockets and the Warriors and the three-point shot. Up really until the early 2000s and through the 2000s, it was believed that in order to win in the NBA, you had to have either a dominant big man or a dominant wing player. And if you actually look back at all the championship teams before 2015, almost every single team had either a dominant big or a wing. There's a few exceptions. You have the 2004 Pistons, you have the late 80s and early 90s Pistons, but the vast majority of teams had one of these two positions be dominant. If you look at the 2015 Warriors, though, their team was very different. They did not have a dominant big man or really a dominant wing player. Rather, they built their entire team around two guards, a point guard and a shooting guard, that just happened to be two of the best three-point shooters of all time. And they changed how we view basketball. But just like the Oakland A's, before they actually were able to win anything, most analysts, including a lot of the really well-known basketball analysts, said that this team could never win. That they could never win by just shooting three-pointers. That they had to have a dominant big person. And as a result, many people wrote them off. Why? Because the prevailing paradigm of the time was that in basketball, the best shot is the shot that's closest to the basket, which makes a lot of sense because the closer you are, the better the chance you have at making the basket. However, a few innovative thinkers, most notably Daryl Morey of the Houston Rockets, started to think outside that conventional framework, started to challenge that paradigm and look to shift it. Using the same kind of ideas of Billy Bean, he wanted to look for a new way that he could gain a competitive advantage over other teams. So what the thinkers realized was that not all shots are created equal. So that while, yes, if you get a shot closer to the basket, you have a greater chance at scoring, you also have to take into account how many points each shot is worth. We did a whole podcast on this where we talked about game theory in the NBA. The short version is that a three-point shot actually holds more value even if you make it at a lesser rate because you get an extra point for it. So this change in mindset was initially laughed at by most of the league. They thought this will never work. The Rockets ran a style where they only tried for layups and three-pointers. The Warriors ran a style where they shot a vast majority of threes. And they did this in 2015 to the tune of winning an NBA title. And they went on to go to five straight NBA titles and win three NBA championships. And as soon as they started winning, just like in baseball when the Red Sox won using Moneyball, in basketball when the Warriors won using the three-point shot, we all of a sudden had a paradigm shift. Teams rushed to adapt this new ideology. They started to look at players different and evaluate their ability to shoot threes more than they cared about their ability to score twos or score at the rim. Again, we had a championship bring about a paradigm shift, bring about a change in how we view a world within sports. What these two examples of paradigm shifts really highlight then is that sometimes in sports and in business, the major incident that incites change that leads to a gestalt shift is success. Put pretty simply, when a team or a company succeeds doing something new and innovative, others change their approach and quickly adapt what that successful team or company is doing to try to mirror them. But it's not until that other company has success 
that they're able to shift their view of the world, shift their view of business, shift their view of sports, and adapt that new mindset. However, success is not the only inciting incident that can lead to major paradigm shifts. As I mentioned at the onset of the podcast, sometimes major world events or disasters can have a similar effect on how we view the world and as a result, how businesses and sports operate. This was nowhere more true in the world of sports than the paradigm shift that happened in America after 9-11. Just compare the world of sports pre-9-11 to post. Now, some of you might not remember going to sporting events before 9-11 happened, but the world before 9-11 was much more relaxed when it came to security. When you would go to a game, it was very easy to walk in through the gates with your ticket. Yes, you might have had some security guards and police officers throughout the stadium really there to try to protect fans from each other and from being drunk idiots. But if you fast forward to after 9-11, we had a complete shift in how we viewed sporting events. We now realize that sporting events, yes, are places to go and have fun and enjoy something, but they can also, because of the fact that they're mass gatherings, be a site for terrorist attacks. And so what happened on 9-11 called us to shift our view of the world and it made us change how we acted in that world. What was the major paradigm shift? We ramped up stadium security. Now when you go to a game, not only do you have to pass through metal detectors before you enter the facility, you also have to have a clear bag in order to bring any outside material into the stadium. And that bag is subject to search. We've also drastically increased the presence of security personnel throughout the stadium. What happened on 9-11 was an inciting incident that caused a paradigm shift in how we approach event security. But 9-11 isn't the only inciting incident that we can point to that has caused paradigm shifts within sport. If we go back to 1970 when Richard Nixon signed the Public Health Cigarette Smoking Act into law, we can see another major paradigm shift in the world of sports. This act banned cigarette ads from appearing on television and radio, and as a result it forced tobacco companies to have to look at how they were advertising their product and shift it. Just like we talk about with paradigms, we get blinded into focusing only on what we know. Well, by putting this law into place, tobacco companies had to figure out a new way to advertise their product. The result was in 1971, Winston became the title sponsor for NASCAR, dumping millions and millions of dollars into the sport. And as a result, it changed advertising in sport forever. The sponsorship deal served as a paradigm shift for how we view the commodification of sports. Yes, before that, we did have sponsorship deals, especially with things like stadiums. And we had advertisers wanting to attach to sporting organizations, especially through things like TV commercials. But this act by Winston of becoming the title sponsor for NASCAR ramped that up and it showed companies that through sponsorship deals through associating with sporting organizations teams or events they can make massive amounts of money 
As a result, we see a whole new world develop connecting sports and business. We see this whole new world develop between sport and marketing. It leads to these massive TV deals that we currently are dealing with today. This shift in 1970 from not allowing cigarette companies to advertise on TV and radio forced was the inciting incident for tobacco companies to move their products into the world of sports. And all of a sudden, we have a shift in our paradigms and how we view sport marketing, how we view sport sponsorship, and it's led us to the world we are in today. We can look also at the 1984-1988 Olympics as paradigm shifts within the Olympic movement. Because historically speaking, the Olympics were always set to be for amateur athletics. We did a whole podcast talking about Rule 50 in the Olympics. I would recommend you go back and listen to get more in depth. But up until 1984, professional athletes were not allowed to participate in the Olympics. You had to be an amateur because they were trying to uphold the sanctity of sport and competition. In 1988, that changed, though. The Olympics started to allow professional athletes to compete. And that leads us to 1992 Dream Team. And all of a sudden, we have a complete shift in how we view the Olympics and sporting competitions. When you couple that with the 1984 Olympics, which was the first Olympics that allowed the selling of sponsorships by the host city, which turned the Olympics into a profitable entity for the host city, again, we saw a complete shift in how the Olympics were viewed. So we have these instances that are put in place both in 1970 through a law in America and then in 84 and 88 by the Olympic Committee, rules and laws that are put in place that cause us to shift how we view these aspects of sport. Another major paradigm shift that we saw in the late 90s, early 2000s dealt with the internet. If you go back to the 80s and the early 90s, we could only really view sports through the TV. We could only really consume the entity around sports through radio and newspapers, or you had to actually be there, or you could maybe read magazines. But when the internet came along, that shift how we consume sports. Not only did we have greater access to a wider breadth of teams, but we could also now consume only what we wanted. I didn't have to watch an entire TV show just to see the highlights from my team. I could go on the internet and I could see them immediately. And I could read only the content that dealt with my specific team. The internet caused us to shift how we view and consume sports. Which also caused us to shift how we spend money on sports. Now we might not be spending as much money on newspapers because we can go get the content for free online. Now I might not spend as much time watching a live broadcast because I can go online and see the highlights in a very short period of time. The internet has shifted that and it will continue to shift that paradigm of how we view sports. So that brings us to the current day in the situation that we're currently experiencing as a result of the coronavirus. We know that changes are coming as a result of what we see. The question just becomes, what are those changes going to be? And are they going to be paradigm shifts? Are they going to be long-lasting? Are there going to be changes that completely flip how we view, consume, or think about sports? The answer is, we just don't know. We can hypothesize and look to what some of those changes are going to be, though. And we can try to determine whether we think that they're going to be major changes. Changes that last. For example, we know that the schedule 
of competitions is going to change. The NBA, the MLB, the NHL are all suspending play right now, but they're all going to come back at some point, probably with shorter seasons, maybe with adjusted off seasons. Could those changes that are put in place for the short term be lasting? Let's just look at a sport like baseball, for example. Baseball plays 162 games a year, something that has been going on for a long, long time. To the point where people don't want to change it because they're used to that being the sport. But arguments have been made oftentimes in the media that baseball needs an update. That yes, there has popularity with the sport regionally, but it's tough for people nationally to care about a random game in the middle of the summer that might not mean anything. So by shortening the season, people have argued that we can actually increase the intrigue of the sport by taking it from 162 games, maybe down to 142 games. Now, all of a sudden, every game means more. There's more intensity involved in the sport, and maybe we can actually increase viewership even though we're losing 20 games. Well, we're going to be forced to do something like that this year, regardless of if we want to or not. Could this serve as a paradigm shift for how we view the sport of baseball? Instead of being this long 162-game season stretched out over the course of spring and the summer and all the way into the fall, maybe we just shorten the season and we change it and try to change the sport in its entirety to make it something more exciting, more in line with that internet era that we were just talking about. What about the NBA? We've argued the NBA also has a season that's too long. 82 games stretched out over the course of three seasons is a lot. Again, we're going to have to shift what's happening, probably moving the NBA playoffs, the NBA championship, all the way back into the fall, meaning we're going to also have to change the following season, maybe starting the NBA season as late as Christmas time. But that could give them an opportunity to try something to see if it can stick, to see if we can change how we view basketball instead of being a sport that starts in the fall and competes with football, to starting at Christmas time, to completely owning their own segment of the market. We could potentially see another paradigm shift with the Olympics, which has been forced to delay the start of the 2020 games all the way back to 2021. Just like in 84 and 88, maybe this is an opportunity for the Olympics to revisit their structure and model. And instead of going every four years, which really has just been kept in place due to tradition, maybe we change that and we turn it to a three-year cycle, increasing the amount of Olympic games that we have then. Having uh, winter games and summer games every three years would increase the opportunity for TV networks to broadcast that, making them more money. It would increase potential sponsorships and revenue generations for not only the Olympic committees, but the host countries and the individuals who are competing. So maybe the forcing of the Olympics to only go on a three-year cycle from 2021 to 2024 might serve as a paradigm shift for how we structure and view the Olympics altogether. And maybe we'll see shifts in TV deals going forward because we know that we consume sports at a very high rate through TV, through the internet. But we're now in a period where there are no live sports and yet people are okay. Yes, they might be missing out on that sense of competition in what they're seeing on TV, but Maybe there's a recalibration. Maybe there is a paradigm shift in all this money that's flooded into professional athletics and into amateur athletics to broadcast 
or have the right to broadcast the contest? Maybe there's a shift and an adjustment with that. Maybe other sports that aren't traditional sports, maybe they get the limelight now. Something like eSports, where I don't actually have to be in the same room as someone, and thus quarantine and social distancing isn't affecting those competitions. Maybe a sport like that takes hold. We've seen the NBA and the NFL actually try to capture that, having competitions amongst their players by playing the video games. They're broadcasting those things on ESPN right now. So maybe we see esports grow in popularity as a result of this and actually become a mainstream sport, shifting how we view sports and define sports forever. Or maybe there's something else that we don't even foresee right now that could serve as a paradigm shift. We just don't know. But what we do know is that we have a set of worldviews. We have a way that we all see the world. And oftentimes, that paradigm, that set of worldviews, acts as blinders and keeps us from seeing new things, keeps us from changing. It's not until we have something that forces us into making an adjustment, whether it's seeing another team, another organization be successful doing something very different than us, or whether it's an inciting incident like 9-11, like a law that's being put in place, or like the coronavirus. It's not until we have those inciting instances that we're forced to view things in a different light. We're forced to expand our worldview because we're forced to question everything that we believe in our current view set. By doing that, by forcing us and challenging us to view things different, we can shift our overall view of everything. We've seen it happen in the world of sports, as we've pointed out throughout this podcast today. What's interesting is to contemplate how what is currently happening might be one of those initiating moments, might be one of those things that forces changes in sports that are going to last forever. The question I have for you then is what changes do you think might be brought about? What long-lasting gestalt shifts in the world of sports do you think could come about with this coronavirus? Hopefully our conversation today has shined some light and got you thinking about what that new and different sporting world might look like. If you have any questions about anything we covered or ideas about how the world might change, please feel free to follow us and reach out to us on Instagram at thesportprofessor. Until next time, though, hope you enjoyed this episode of The Sport Professor Podcast.